0: As we continue Hebrews 13 this morning, I want to, I want to just start with a, a question for you. If you could change anything about your life right now that you think would make you happier, what would it be? So You've got, you got a clean slate. Somebody comes to you and they say, okay, you can, we'll change anything about your life right now in order to make you happier. I want you to think for a second, what, what would that be? What would you change? Some of us would say, well, I'd, I'd, have, I'd finally have a house that I could, I could call home, and I feel like that would give me, that would give me rest. Some of us would think, I'd, maybe that car that I don't, I don't even need a nice car. I just need a car that works. Like could I, I'd love a car. Some of us, it would just be to somebody to just come and take our credit card bills and pay them off student loans, amen, the whole thing. Some of us, it would be for that ailment that we have been struggling with for so long to finally be healed, that we would just be able to get up in the morning and not be filled with pain. Others of us, it would be that that God would give us a spouse finally wouldn't be single anymore. Others, it might be that God would fix our spouse certainly not my issue, but um, (laughs) it might be hers. I don't know. Uh, I think think if we're honest, if we were to look at everybody's list as to what we would say we would change in order to make our lives happy, almost, I would suggest that, that most of them, if we're honest, we would have listed out something outside of us. I mean, how many of you actually said, what really needs to be changed in order for me to be more happy in life is, is my heart. You see, when we, when we think about life so often, we, we, we just think about circumstances that are around us. And we think that if we can go outside and fix stuff around us, that that will give us, give us what we need on the inside. But the Bible tells us to do things quite the opposite. The Bible says that that true happiness in life, as it were, comes from changing our hearts to be contented ultimately in God and what He has given us, so that as we approach whatever situation or circumstance we may have, that there will be a peace and a joy that passes all understanding. And that's the heart of what we're going to be thinking about this morning, about how how dangerous discontentment is in our lives. And a lot of us wouldn't think of discontentment as some kind of big sin. But I want us to say, I would like to suggest that it is is kind of the carbon monoxide of sins. That very often you don't notice is around you. But the longer it hangs around, the more it sucks life out of your very soul. And leads you away from delight in God. If you have your bibles let's look at this idea this morning in hebrews chapter 13 hebrews 13 if you don't have a bible as mark mentioned earlier we're giving them away this morning free from us to you it's a gift we're on page 1009 in those bibles that are there in front of you just to catch you up on what's going on here in the book of hebrews this is written to a congregation uh, that would have maybe looked like this one um, of people who have left their former gods who have left Um, Judaism, in order to follow Jesus as the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, and they are now running the race of faith, and they are being tempted to forsake Jesus and leave Jesus in order to go back to the world or back to Judaism primarily, and what the author is doing is he's lifting up through this letter to the congregation, no, 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 Jesus is better. He's what you're looking for. He is the answer for the cry of your heart. Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He is the hope of the world. And as he's been laying all of this out, and he's talking to them about running this race of faith, and then as we're doing this, we're to be worshiping God as we're running by, by faith. And if you look at Hebrews twelve twenty eight, the end of it there, this is how he, he ends that last section. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And he tells us here in chapter 13 that we've been studying for the past number of weeks what that worship looks like. So, as we're running the race of faith, chasing Christ, we are to be worshiping God, which he said is not just the singing portion of your Sunday morning service, but rather it is shown in loving one another, in showing hospitality to one another, in remembering the persecuted brothers and sisters. In, as We saw last week in, in holding marriage in high honor and, and, and pursuing uh, sexual purity within the context of marriage. That all of those things are worshipful to God, as is our text this morning. Speaking about breathing in the fresh air of contentment as we run. Look at Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hear it again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, there's a reason, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's our response, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the the big idea of these two verses here in Hebrews 13 is, is this, that we worship God, or one of the ways we worship God, is by fleeing covetousness and finding contentment in Him. We flee covetousness and we find contentment in Him. We're going to talk about this big idea in, in kind of two, two parts this morning. The first is keep your heart from coveting money. Keep your heart from coveting money. And the second one would be give your heart to contentment in God. Give your heart to contentment in God. All right? Let's look at this, this first portion here. Keep, keep your heart from coveting money. Look again at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. It's interesting, it's just two words in the original language. A word that, that, that says, not loving of money, and then it's next to your life. So what ought not mark your life is the loving of money. Now, some of us might say, well, what do you mean by the love of money? Well, the love of money is the desire. So it's a heart thing. It's the desire for wealth and all that it affords us at the cost of delighting in God and all that he provides. I'll I'll say that again for you. The love of money is the desire for wealth and all that it can afford us at the cost of delight in God and all that he provides. There's always a trade-off. You you know that with your own money. If you've got $100, you can buy one thing, but that means you're not going to be able to buy another thing. Well, it's the same thing here in regards to our heart. We're going to give it to one thing and not to another. And he says there's a temptation for you to be mindful of. Now, the early church fathers who wrote on Hebrews thought that the command was given here to this specific church because they were struggling after they had lost a bunch of their possessions due to persecution. Look back at 10.34 for just a second. Hebrews 10.34 should be just to your left there. He says in 1034, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Meaning when they came for you and for your brothers, you said, you can, you can have it all, but you're not getting my devotion to Jesus. You can have my stuff, but my allegiance is with Him. And they plundered people's stuff. Now, the longer you walk with God, the more you'll understand what this this means right here. But but sometimes it's it's easy, sometimes it's very hard to obey God, but sometimes it's easier to obey God at first, but then afterwards, there are temptations that still come that whisper in your ear that maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And, And I wonder if if the longing for those possessions and the comforts that they gave these people had crept back in. That they're now sitting with the aftermath of losing everything because they've said, we're with Jesus, and now they're they're sitting there and they've got nothing. They're being called to run in faith, but but they're being tempted to set their eyes back on on money and wealth and what they don't have, and it slows down their running. It dulls their affections. It becomes dangerous. Now, that may have been what they were facing. It seems like a, a pretty good guess anyway. Now, most of us in here aren't struggling with the love of money, because we've faced persecution and lost everything for Jesus. At least not yet. But that makes this command no less relevant. When we hear, keep your life free from the love of money, I, I'm guessing that most of us in here this morning can say, yeah, well, listen, I'm, I'm not in love with gold bars or gold nuggets. Like, that doesn't, that's not my thing that I think about all the time. And I don't, I don't really, I don't have a thing for this this printed piece of paper. But if we think about the command here, we, we are tempted, are we not, to love what money does for us, the comfort that it buys us, the air conditioning that it provides some of us, the opportunities that it affords some of us. Some of you went to schools and had great privilege There's no reason to feel guilty for that, but there comes great responsibility with that. There's affirmation that it awards us, places power in our hands, a sense of security that it gives, because there is, (laughs) the feeling that you have when your bank account is overflowing is starkly different than the feeling you have when it's overdrawn. You know what I'm saying? How many of you have felt both of that before? Some of you felt that this week. Because when you're low on, on wealth or cash and the creditors are calling, there, is a feel, there are feelings of shame and fear. You feel desperate. You feel stressed. There's sleeplessness. You feel depressed. And you feel tempted to find some way to get some money to fix these problems. It's quite different than sometimes when money's so stacked up, you're like, I, I'm just use this for wallpaper. Like it's it's just rolling in. You feel wise, don't you? You look at your count and you be like, Yeah, who's crushing it right now? I am. You feel powerful. You walk into a store and you're like, I could buy what I want. You feel invincible. You feel free to give like you want to give and to spend like you want to spend. You ever had that feeling before? When I used to live in, in Dallas, when I was rich in Dallas, no, I, didn't, I was never that. Um, but I had a friend, I would have friends who would sometimes ask me if I wanted to go to Dallas Mavericks games. That's an NBA basketball team. And um, so one time, buddy calls me, and he's like, hey, uh, you want to go to a Mavs game tonight? And I had some stuff going on. I was like, actually, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of booked up. He goes, bro, listen, I got Ross Perot's tickets. Now listen, you may not like Ross Perot's politics or anything else about him, but you would like his tickets, okay? <laughs> I'll tell you that. I said, for real? He goes, trust me on this one. I said, okay. So we get there, and this just has not happened for me very often, okay? I don't normally have VIP around my neck for anything, but we show up, and they, we showed them the tickets, and they're like, oh, wait here for a moment, and they got us a personal escort, and they took us down, not just to the lower level, and not just to the court side, but they sat us at the scorer's table. Some of you don't know what that means. Those are great seats, okay? <laughs> we sat at the stinking scorer's table. I mean, dudes were coming over and getting chalk, and it was like, it was right there, okay? And like, I, I, I'm not lying. When I'm sitting there, and they're bringing me stuff, they're like, I'm like, do I have to pay for that? They're like, no, it's, it's for you, sir. I was like, well, yes, then we'll take whatever you're bringing and uh, just load it up. And I I tell you what, I sat there, kind of puffed up, leaning back, looking around, being like, y'all want these tickets, don't you? (laughs) And they weren't even my tickets. (laughs) But money does that for us, doesn't it? There's something that it gives us that we, we love. It's a powerful thing, and this is why we're warned To keep our hearts free from loving it so much. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To which Satan loves to come in real quick and whisper, What does that really even mean? To serve money. What what does it even mean to love money? You don't love money. These are needs that you have. You need a new phone, don't you? You see, Satan is crafty. He wants us to think that this verse doesn't apply to us, either because we're not super poor or not super wealthy or just that we're immune to certain things. But He wants us to justify our needs at the cost of remembering that all we have is from God and for God. Jesus gave this warning in Matthew 19. He said to His disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means, if you'd have won that Powerball a couple weeks ago or a couple days ago or whenever it was... It would have been harder for you to get to heaven had you you nailed that. And Jesus warns us here. He says, "The, the more money you have and the more you think about money, the more difficult it will be for you to make it to heaven. Why? Because you're less aware of your desperate need for God. There's a well-known actor who, I, I, won't, I won't share his name, but this is, this is a viable report from someone who shared the gospel with him. And uh, he grew up in an evangelical home. You would certainly know, know who he was if I mentioned. He grew up in a home. His family's all still Christians. But uh, he was, they got an opportunity to sit down with him and talk with him. And they, they asked him um, what, what he thought about the claims of the gospel. What do you think about Jesus, that Jesus came and he died for sinners and he rose from the dead, and that in him we can have eternal joy and forgiveness of our sins. And this person leaned back in his Colorado home, one of his homes, and he he leaned back like this and he said, look at all of this that I have. He goes, what do I need God for? Now, sitting on this side of it, it may be easy for some of us to be look at him and be like, that's, that's pretty foolish. But this is why Jesus warns. He says, actually, it's quite dangerous to have tons of stuff. And who knows how much that is, right? He says, beware of craving for the very thing that will lead many to perish for eternity. And this isn't just a danger for people who don't know God. This is a danger for the people of God as well. Hear this from 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving of the love for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Two things to notice about that. Number one, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not the root of evil. It's the root of all sorts of evil. Meaning, when when you're craving for money, you start getting weird. You start justifying things in your mind that you just wouldn't do if you were sober. You start thinking, you know what, I'm gonna lie right here and it's gonna be okay. Many of you have felt that or maybe even given into that when preparing your taxes. You you, you kind of rationalize, well, I paid enough. I already paid enough and they're not doing their job and look, there's potholes everywhere or whatever it is that you point to. You're like, they're not doing their job. So I'm going to be able to justify here sinning against God in order to keep a couple more dollars in my pocket. Or cheating, lying, using other people created in God's image, using them so that you can put more money in your pocket. He says, that's a very real danger. If you are craving money And it's also dangerous to your faith Some have wandered from the faith Because of craving for worldly comforts So Jesus would say to us here Listen, if you think that money Can't lead you away from the path To eternal life And lead you toward the path To eternal destruction You need to be very careful Because that pride is going to blind you And it is dangerous Because This morning, this thing he's talking about, this is a heart issue. That's why he says in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. What is your treasure? Is it Jesus? Where is your heart? Is it him? Because if not, Satan has a buffet full of things for you to start looking at and thinking, Well, if I could just have that, I'll be happy where the author of Hebrews and God Almighty through the Holy Spirit here says, No, Jesus is what you need. So I would ask you, what, what do you think about when you're just kind of by yourself in your leisure? Where does your, what does your mind run to? Archbishop William Temple once said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. When you have a few moments, what is it that you run to for comfort? To pacify yourself. You know what I mean by that? Pacify. We have, a lot of our kids have had pacifiers. And, uh, they get to a certain age where they have to keep it in their bed. They can have it at night because we want to sleep, and that's fine. But you can't have it during the day. Every once in a while, we've got a couple kids that will, that during the day they'll get, they'll get a little stressed or something will happen on, they'll get cranky, and they'll disappear for a moment. And what they do is we notice that they'll, they'll run upstairs, and they'll lay in there, they'll put like an elbow in the bed, so they're legal, and they'll grab the passy and they'll take a couple hits off of it, put it back down, and go back downstairs. <laughs> And I look at them and I'm like, we don't change much, do we? Just a couple minutes over here on this website or that website or just a a couple minutes doing this or doing that and we're, we're looking for something. We're looking for something to give our hearts joy and peace and comfort. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. So what do you daydream about? What occupies your mind when you're at ease? And I think something that's tied to that is what do you spend your money on? Because Jesus says your money flows toward your heart's love. So for instance, right now, if we were to take your credit card statement or bank statement or whatever, you know, form of paying stuff you do, and we put it up here, and we put it on display, what would it say about your heart? What would it say that you really love? What would really be your master? Do you love money and what it gives you? What if your your house, or your car, or your wardrobe, or your gadgets, or your TV were taken away like the brothers and sisters here in the book of Hebrews? What would that do to you? And why would it do something to you? I'm not trying to give you false guilt about wanting a house and it's fine to have transportation, but I'm talking about how much do you cling to it? He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, what can we do to guard our hearts from the love of money? I'm just going to give you two simple things. Number one, beware of what cultivates discontentment in you. Beware of consuming what cultivates discontentment in your heart. So I was a marketing major at at Virginia Tech, um, and my job was to figure out a way to make you think that your life was miserable without this product that I was going to try and sell you. That's basically what my job was. I mean, we had whole classes on psychology and talking about how people are wired and how to make them feel like they're going to fall apart if they don't get a Kia. Like, how can you make people do that? That's what advertising, all of it is about. If you don't get this, you're going to have no friends, you're going to be alone for the rest of your life, and you're going to forever be uncool. And you've got to be very careful To know that you are seeing it all the time. The world's aim is to stir up discontentment in your heart so that you're always looking around and feeling like you need something. And very often, money is going to be the means to get that which you are looking for. Uh, This week, whatever day Prime Day was, was that Tuesday? Good, nobody knows. All right, well, (laughs) I happened to, to be looking on there, and there was... There was this 65-inch curved TV for, like, a great price. And I'm trying to think, how can I justify getting this? Like, I don't—we have two TVs. We don't even really watch one of them. Why, why do I need another TV? I, I don't. But it was a good price, by the way. Just note to yourself, just because it's a good price does not mean—and it's a good deal does not mean it's a good time to buy something, okay? That's just—don't do that. Okay, back. So I'm sitting there looking at that and I'm feeling it in me, I need a TV. When everything in me is actually I don't need a TV. You just have to be careful with how much you're taking in stuff. What stirs up coveting in your heart? What you're watching, what you're listening to, who you're hanging out with. The Lord said in the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Or your covet your neighbor's wife or husband, his male servant or his female servant, or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And you may be thinking, I ain't no problem with somebody's ox. But the heart is the same thing here. It is easy to look at people and want what they have. So I just want you to know, it just doesn't matter if your laundry room ever looks like somebody's on Pinterest. It just doesn't matter. It just, it does not matter. So, consider what cultivates your desire for discontent. The second thing is to fill your affections with the generosity of Jesus. Fill your affections with the generosity of Jesus. So, one thing, be careful of this, the other is pursue this. Purge that, pursue this. Purge things that stir up discontentment, pursue the generosity of Jesus. One of the most gracious things God can do for us is to help us see our need for Him. So that when He says, I am your helper, that means something to us. It is gracious of the Lord to show that deep down, we trade God for stuff. Just like Adam and Eve, they traded God for a piece of mysterious fruit. And we all fall into that very same temptation. A new phone, a new car, new clothes, more affirmation on social media, more dollars to do what we want. And some of these things that we desire aren't forbidden, but they become idols when we trade God for them. And that deserves judgment. And God, because he is good, he will not give his glory to another. And because God is good, he will judge evil. Including your evil and my evil. But the good news of the gospel is this, that there is hope. He says, I am better, which is what Hebrews and the whole Bible is all about. That Jesus, that though he was rich, he gave it all up in order to come to earth. Second Corinthians 8 says it this way, by the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, my sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus gave up everything to come to earth to live a life that we couldn't live and then to go to the cross and then there to take the judgment that we deserve for all of our idolatries and trading God for stuff. And he died and took the wrath that we deserve and they went into the grave and three days later he rose from the dead and now promises that if we will turn from loving other things and turn to loving him by his grace, it's called repentance. If we will do that, He will be our inheritance. And we get Him. We get Him, which is better than any fleeting thing. Set your hearts regularly on the generosity that God has shown us in Jesus, because that is what moves us to be content in Him, which is our our second and briefer point. Number two, give your heart to contentment in God. Give your heart to contentment in God. Look again at verse 5. Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Notice here there's there's a command, and then He gives a reason, then He gives you a response. Look at the command again. Be content with what you have. The word content, it means to be... Sufficient, something to be sufficient, to have enough, to be satisfied. So 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, meaning it's enough for you. You don't need me to change your situations and circumstances and take this thorn out of your life. What you need is me and my grace. It's the same word in 1 Timothy 6, 8. If we have food and clothing, what well, we need to stay alive, with these we will be content. He says, that's that's enough. So contentment is an inward satisfaction that joyfully submits to God's providence and His provision. Contentment is an inward satisfaction. It's a resting of the heart in peace that joyfully submits. It's a trusting, rejoicing, not miserable, okay God, whatever, but a trusting, a joyful submission of our heart his providence means the way he works things out is good, and his provision, what he gives us is good. It's a resting there, a peace there. So contentment is not complacency, where you just get satisfied where you are, and you rest in a way that ignores danger or is just kind of, you know, couch potato Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm also not saying that contentment is apathy. So passion and ambition and hard work are godly qualities when they are aimed at furthering the kingdom of God. Those are good things. But rather here, the call to be content with what you have is a call to be satisfied in God and what he has given you. Are you content with the lot the Lord has given to you? Well, maybe, maybe not, but I want to be. How can we be content? Well, we must learn it because it does not come naturally. This comes from the text that we we heard earlier, that, that Merck read for us from Philippians 4. Listen to this again, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I have learned, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I have learned, he's sitting in jail, by the way, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you notice there twice the word that showed up? Starts with an L, ends with a D. Learned. said it twice. Contentment must be Learned. It must be cultivated. We must come to the school of contentment and be instructed by God to learn to not allow our hearts to be controlled by what we have or what we don't have, or to be controlled by our circumstances, whether there's abundance or whether there's emptiness. You see, the secret to contentment is not a change of circumstances, but it is a change of heart. Did you hear that? Remember the opening question, what would make your life happier? And we all listed out stuff. I mean, I knew the right answer and I was struggling, okay? I I know. But what we feel is circumstance, situation, stuff money can fix. But the secret to contentment is not a change of circumstances, but a change of heart. And that is not something that we can do in our own strength. So the good news comes there in that Philippians 4.13, the most out-of-context quoted verse of all time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse, which some of you may have tattooed on your body because you think, this is, this is like it. Because it means that all of my hopes and dreams and ambitions are going to come true. This was, I mean, we were a bunch of pagan, non-Christian basketball players when I was in high school. And we, always, we would pray the Lord's Prayer and we would quote this verse. And I didn't know who Jesus was, I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that God was going to be on our side and we were going to win this game. Well, this verse is not about the fact that you can win the football game through Christ. You may win the game, but it's, it's, and, and be content in that if he gives it to you. But it's also about how do you be content when you go out there and you drop the touchdown pass at the end? Or you get out there, you've been training all season, and in pregame warm-ups you blow out your ACL. How do you be content then? That's how you, you need strength to win and to lose in life. This verse is not about getting that new job, that new house, or that new outfit. It's about finding your satisfaction in the job you already have, in the house you already have, in the wardrobe hanging in your closet right now. A friend of mine named Eric Raymond, who writes for Gospel Coalition, had some excellent articles on contentment. I encourage you to check them out. So I would ask you, what what, what do you have. Be content with that. Be content with what the Lord's given you. But the aim of that isn't simply to just get you, just to bend your arm to say, okay, I'll stick with my iPhone 5. He's not just trying to say, okay, I'll stick with my 80s-style kitchen, or I'll drive the lame car for Jesus. That's not his aim. I'm sure 80s is coming back around, so just hang on. It'll be fine. It's bigger than that. What he wants here is he wants us to be content with God himself. He tells you that right there. See that little word for? If you write in your Bible, you can underline it or circle or highlight it. That shows you why he says what he says. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have for. This is why. See, he roots our reason for contentment in the fact that we have a God who has promised us, That though we may lose our job, though we may lose our health, we may lose our spouse, our cars, our friends, our opportunities, we may lose everything, but we will never, if we are in Christ, lose him. Because he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. And do you notice how he does it? He roots our hope in his promises. Do you notice that that's in quotations? For he has said, quote, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's quoting, we don't know exactly which Old Testament verse, but he could have been quoting what what God said to Jacob in Genesis 28. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. That's how God treats his children. He said, I made a promise to you, and I ain't a liar. I'm going to keep it all the way to the end, so go do what I told you to do. I'm going to be with you. Or it may be from Deuteronomy 31, when they're about to go into the promised land, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. The Lord your God goes with you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Just a generation earlier, they'd all freaked out and been like, there's giants in the land. And because of that, they were all judged. God says, I got the giants. I'm bigger than the giants. I made the giants. I'm bigger than them. Do not fear, I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Or it may be from Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Pause. I need, this is important for us as a church who wants to be about reading the Bible, okay? Reading the Bible is not just an in itself. It's not just something to check off and be like, oh, we did our religious thing for the day. But rather... Notice how Scripture works here in the lives of believers. Do you notice how God uses it? He tells you something, and then he roots what he told you in in truth. Because it's that truth of God's promises that anchors our hearts, it shapes our thinking, it redirects our affections. When will he leave or forsake? Never. And you've got to know that. You've got to know that. When stocks are up or stocks are down, he will not leave you or forsake you. When health is good or health is gone, he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. When friends are many or friends are few, he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. When your spouse it is that for better or when it's for worse, he will not leave you or forsake you. When your job and you get a promotion or get laid off, he will never leave you or forsake you. Do you see what he's doing right here? He is strengthening our trust in him, which strengthens our love for him. Because the more that we see that we can trust him, the more that we love him, which makes him our treasure, not money and stuff. This is strengthening in Christ that enables us to do all things, including be content, no matter what comes. That's how it happens. That, by the way, is why you read your Bible. Because you need promises. And then he tells us how to respond. So the Lord has said, so now we say. You see that? God says we speak back. By the way, Bible trivia, this is the only time in the book of Hebrews that we say anything. We haven't, the only person who's been talking so far is the Holy Spirit and Jesus and God the Father speaking to us. This is the only time we say anything. And what do we say? We say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's your one line in the play. Nail it. Every day. Practice it day in and day out. Because that is our hope. All this truth that we've been getting for 13 chapters is intended to make the people who received it and to make us say that with confidence, not just a sheepish, okay, I'll trust God, but like, no, he is our helper. Will not fear. What can anybody do to me? You see, contentment in God produces confidence in God, no matter what the circumstance. No matter who comes against us, we can say, He is my helper. He is my helper. I can't do it. You're right, you can't. But I will give you strength. This frees us to be content and generous in the midst of anything, including persecution. This helps them to worship God by loving others, by being hospitable, By visiting those in prison, because what this idea of contentment does is it gives us open hands to say everything God has given me is from him and for him anyway. It's really interesting that the word used up there for keep your life free from the love of money, it is closely related to the word for hospitality, except it's the opposite of it. So if you're discontent and you feel greedy, you're not gonna be hospitable, you're not gonna be generous. When you love money, you will have a difficult time loving others, but Jesus is the helper of those who refuse to love money, who place all of their hope in him, knowing that because he is good and he does good, we will never lack anything we need. Now, the last little thing I want us to think about, I had a question that was bothering me the whole time I was studying this. I was talking with Carrie about it last night as I was trying to finish this up, and I was, I was trying to figure out what is the connection between the command to not love money and the fear of what people can do to us. Do not love money. Do not like, and keep your life from the, free from the love of money. And then he says, we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What's the connection between that and that? Between not loving money and Fearing people. And I'm sure there's lots of applications, but this is where I landed. The fear of man, specifically here in the context of persecution, is a great danger to the perseverance of the faith. If you fear people's opinions and what they're gonna do to you, you will be very tempted to renounce Jesus. Because you love comfort and you've been, you've been, what's the nicest way to say, you've been training on comfort. for for a long time. That's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to chew on the food of the world so that we love it. So the fear of man, specifically persecution here, is a great danger danger to the perseverance in faith. Loving money links our hearts to something other than God. It builds into it. It builds into our heart that we're going to love something other than God, and we can't love both. And Satan wants you to think you can, but you can't. And when we have a divided heart, we are weak in faith. So if we are consumed with worry and pursuing money and clinging to comforts and climbing ladders, we will be weakened and distracted and in danger of allowing the fear of man in persecution to knock us off from persevering in faith in Christ. I think it's the same thing that he, why did he put the marriage thing in there last week? And we talked about how when marriage is really hard, it's difficult to keep trusting Jesus and follow Jesus. Well, when you're struggling with money, sometimes it's really difficult to keep trusting Jesus and following Jesus. And what he wants us to remember is that, no, no, no. Persecution's coming. You're going to be tempted to fear people. But do not, for I will never leave you and forsake you. I am your helper. Don't fear them. Look at me. Trust me. I'm better, he says. Contentment in God produces confidence in God. We love him. We trust him, we hope in him, we find joy in him. So let me leave you with this. If you're not a Christian, we're thankful that you're here this morning. We think there's no better place for you to be on a Sunday morning than in a place like this where you can hear God's word. Once you know you're not surrounded by a bunch of people who have it all together, everybody in here is bad messed up. All of us, including me. But Jesus comes for those kinds of people. I want you to know that I probably would have balked at this a number of years ago, but you're worshiping something. I just encourage you to do inventory with some of those questions we asked earlier about what does your heart go toward, what do you cling to, because that's your God. And if it all ultimately ends up serving yourself, you might be your own God. I just want you to know that, that God, God is God. And that he's the only one who's worthy of our affections and our worship. And I want you to know that no matter what you can have in this life, Jesus says it's not worth your soul. And I'd say today can be the day that you can surrender and turn to Jesus and be forgiven and be brought into the family of God and receive the inheritance that will never perish or fade. Any of our members who are sitting around you would love to talk with you more about what that means, or if you'd like to set up an appointment this week and talk through that with, with somebody, we'd love to do that. Everybody in here is is thinking about that. We encourage you to do the same. If you're a Christian, I want to remind you of this good promise. If you're a Christian, you are rich in Christ. The promises of God are worth more than silver or gold. The inheritance that we have in Christ will not tarnish or fade. And we can trust him. No matter what comes, no matter what pressures push on us, God is our helper. He has given us everything that we need. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has supplied all our needs in Christ Jesus. He did it before, and he will do it again. You get God. You get him. So do inventory on your heart. Talk amongst friends who will be honest with you about whether or not you're pursuing love of the world and the things it can give you. Brothers and sisters, we're almost home. We have great confidence to cling to Christ. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. He is our helper. What can man do to us?